If you walk down the halls of most elementary schools, you're going to see some common trends. If I was a betting gal, I'd say you're going to see a bunch of bulletin boards with colored paper, some with borders, some without. But then on the bulletin board, you're probably going to see things like journal pages, or pictures of kids making some type of science project, or working with buddies, reading, counting seeds, that kind of thing. Really great stuff. And then some bulletin boards are going to have art. I'm guessing that you're probably going to see either or all of the following. Some kind of Kandinsky abstract art. I'd say the circles probably matched with some type of circle book. Something inspired by Picasso. I'm going to wager a portrait or maybe something of the guitar cubist sculpture. A Gustav Klimt tree. Some kind of flower or landscape inspired by Van Gogh. It's either going to be the sunflowers or some type of wheat-esque field with a dark blue background. Some type of Matisse collage with cut out bits of paper, brightly colored, glued down, very nice. A combination of black paper, pastels and glue to do some type of ice cream, nature or animal related art. And then finally, something inspired by indigenous art. Think a uh, Norvell Morisot or some type of dot-based painting like Maori art. There. I just outlined to you a year's worth of art education in many elementary settings across North America. And I want to be clear here. I know all of this because I have done all of this many times over, in fact, but it wasn't until I began to really step back and look at the nature of what I was having students work on that I realized there were some problematic things going on here. And I'd like to take a moment to also address the fact that I began reading books by different art educators, scholars, activists that really had me start thinking about my place in things like reconciliation, in anti-racism work in education, decolonization of educational structures, that I really started thinking about art as a different way of perpetuating a system of oppression. And I know some people right now are probably rolling your eyes and thinking, oh my goodness, what a social justice warrior. And you know what? Yeah, that's me. So if this is not the podcast for you, I get it totally. Let's part ways here. I wish you the best. Otherwise, buckle in. We're going to keep going. In this episode of Art Intervention, I wanted to talk a little bit more in depth about art education and how art education can often play us all into the hands of the status quo. So here are my big suggestions to folks who are teaching art. And to be clear, this is art at any age or any stage of learning. Kindergarten all the way up to grandmas and grandpas, people working in the elderly care centers, this is aimed at you as well. One. It doesn't have to look pretty. Two, stop focusing on dead white dudes. Three, it shouldn't all look the same. Four, don't worry about it being anime. That's okay. Five, don't worry about the high-priced materials. And six, it should be fun. And let's think about those different considerations in a little more depth. One, it doesn't have to look pretty. I've taught art in a broad range of settings now, from working with the public to working within schools. 
I've taught preschool art all the way up to art courses for those retirees. And here's the thing that I found to be a common thread. People want to make something that looks good, and that's fair. At first, most people aren't super interested in the background information or the history of an artist or an art method. Eventually, many do. And of course, there are some folks that come with that innate fascination already. But typically speaking, most people, especially children, just want to create something that they can display proudly. They also don't want it to be too hard. With young children, they start by boldly leaping into art creation. They scribble or glue or rip or paint any type of shape down onto the page, and then they tell you, it is a dog, or that's my mom, something like that. And they have zero fear. They love it. I once had a kindergartner swear up and down that he could mix the color blue out of any other paint colors. He spent hours trying to prove me wrong that primary colors could, in fact, be mixed. He eventually found out that he could make many beautiful shades of brown or green, but no blue. He didn't get upset when this all came down. He just moved on. And it's interesting, somewhere around age seven, maybe age eight, they seem to consistently become self-conscious. What they see in their heads isn't coming out on the page. Now, we see a shift in those that want to continue on and those that are done with the visual arts. I have talked to countless adults who tell me that they hated art growing up, never connected with it, never even felt that they wanted to do it in schools. Some even told me that they felt threatened and scared when they had to draw shapes for their own children. It is a huge source of anxiety for some adults because they still feel like they can't reproduce what they see in their heads. So when someone takes an art class, they expect results. I should be able to draw. I'm paying you to teach me how to draw. So by the end of this very short six-week program of one to two-hour classes once a week, I should be able to draw like Picasso or like Van Gogh or Da Vinci because those are the artists that people are most familiar with. So I should be able to draw whatever I see in my head, but um, also I don't always have the time to practice for hours on end. Look at Instagram and the number of artists on there who post some kind of content that reminds people of how long it takes for them to perfect a skill and why you can't just DM them and ask them to create something, you know, for likes or for exposure. They're trying to remind folks out there, these artists, that what they do is a trained and skilled craft. It takes hours and hours, years and years to refine a skill that they continue to work at. It's not something that you pick up overnight. And therefore, having someone whittle down their craft into what brush do you use? It's not that simple. Supplies don't matter. The brush doesn't matter. I mean, once you get to a certain level, yeah, that's it does matter. But when you're starting out, the supplies don't matter. It's what you do with them that matters. Many of these content creators, like artists, designers, performers from all over the world, don't just wake up one day and bang out the perfect product or performance. They have to spend hours upon hours practicing. They produce crap that will never see the light of day, but we only wind up seeing polished art or even the similarly polished process art, which isn't really processed because it's still so beautiful. 
I'm talking about those sketchbooks that you see on Instagram or Twitter that look so painstakingly beautiful that you start looking at your own work and think, what's the point? Well, the point is, that's not their process. And if it is, that's their process. It doesn't have to be yours. Remember, I said that not everything has to look the same. Your art shouldn't look like someone else's, and that's a good thing. Let's look at number two. Stop focusing on dead white dudes. So how does this all connect? Remember, people want to see that they or their children are capable of developing something good. They want to be successful and they don't want to feel dumb. That also applies to who we reference when we talk about art. If I mention the words yellow and sunflowers, you pretty much can guess who I'm going to mention. If I take an art class or my child takes an art class where they recreate a famous sunflower field or a flower in a vase, everyone I show will know it. I now have this great talking point for people. Oh my God, that is such an amazing painting. Van Gogh, right? Bingo. In the education world, there are many, many incredible teachers. I would even go as far to say that there's probably more amazing teachers than there are subpar teachers. They all want to do a good job in all aspects of their practice. But, but, the expectations for teachers continue to build, and they can't be experts in everything. You want a teacher who can teach your child superior numeracy skills, to read and write with great ease, to understand the scientific method, and be an incredible musician, artist, athlete? That is a lot to ask of a single person. So knowing that teachers want to do a great job of teaching art in this example, and knowing that they want to encourage students to feel confident and their parents to feel proud, what are you going to do? If you're not a formally trained artist or have no means to take courses to learn about art, chances are the teacher is going to hop online and look at some content for their classes. And what do you find? Typically, if you were to go into Google or some other search engine and look up art lessons or art activities, you're going to see something along the lines of everything that I've already listed. Van Gogh flowers, Picasso faces, Klimt trees, and so on. When I talk to folks about this problem of practice, some educators get a little defensive and tell me things like, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I know who to talk about? How do I know what to create? I'm not an artist. And you know what? I get it. I totally do. It is hard enough as it is to try to teach art when you don't have the background or you're trying to build capacity when you've got a lot of other things going on or even when you've done it for a long time and you're making eye-catching stuff with students and you're wondering, why do I have to change what I'm doing? It's successful. We make the flowers. The parents love it. The kids love it. They learn some elements of art. What's the issue? But... Like Maya Angelou has said, when we know better, we do better. True, you can't know it all. And when you try to do research, the same damn people keep popping up. The same stupid activities time and time again. And this is what the problem is. This is how systemic problems really take hold of organizations and institutions. This is how we have always done things is the cry of systemic oppression. But 
We don't always see the insidious side of this kind of work or this kind of problem. And what is the problem? Let's start by looking at the visibility factor and obvious things here. A bunch of dead white dudes. Nothing wrong with being a dead white dude, but maybe we can try to mix things up a bit by including contemporary artists and more artists of color. When I look at the list of the big famous artists, often taught in art education programs across North America, we see the list which includes names like Pablo Picasso, Vincent van Gogh, Henri Matisse, Gustav Klimt, Vasily Kandinsky, and a few things tend to pop out. And as a quick side note, I love Klimt's work, and it kills me sometimes to not talk about his paintings, but it isn't about me, and it isn't about my love of Gustav Klimt. Thank you. End side note. So let's say in my art education class, we're looking at some common themes which include color theory, abstraction and or non-representational art, elements of art that include line, texture, and shape. And historically, I get why we would then talk about these people because they were huge in the art history world. Picasso, for example, was an incredible individual as his work and his presence spanned many art movements, many of which he was instrumental in the development of. Picasso was an important person in history, but he was also a horrible human being. I can't help but roll my eyes when hearing about folks wanting to ban certain aspects of education because it will negatively impact students, yet we seem totally fine with teaching many young, young students to admire Picasso. And that dude was bad news. Yes, he was talented and important to art history, and I do think we need to talk about him. But he was an abusive predator who groomed young women to participate in sexual, or at least often very creepy, relationships with him. Van Gogh was a very mentally unwell person. He created beautiful, vibrant works of art, and his letters to his brother are fascinating representations of time and practice, and also family. Again, I love Van Gogh, and in the past I taught his works in my class. But when I talk to young people, they often only know that he liked yellow, or he liked to paint flowers. We aren't being very honest and transparent with students when we wash over the fact that he was a tormented individual. So much of his work was an investigation into himself and a continual pursuit of happiness. Do we need to dive deep into his depression and somewhat predatory behavior? Probably not with all students, but it doesn't seem honest to not mention it at all. One of the biggest issues I want to point out is teaching students to recreate art in the style of. We create Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers. We create portraits in the style of Picasso. And that recreation leads us into some really dangerous and uncomfortable territory. We're not taking inspiration from the elements of these artists. We're just copying them verbatim. And so if I can do that with Picasso, why can't I do that with an artist like Norvell Morisot? Teaching students to recreate indigenous art is an issue and is not okay. Take, for example, recreating the work of Norvell Morisot. If you've not heard much about Morisot, we're going to be talking about him in the future on future episodes, but if I were to give you the elevator pitch, he was an artist whose legacy has been riddled with appropriation and fake reproductions, Many sold under his name for financial gain to other people outside of his estate. 
to have students copying his work is almost ironic, as it is the crux of the issue regarding appropriation of artworks. So you might be thinking, okay, so I'm not supposed to teach about Picasso or Van Gogh, but now you want me to teach about artists of color, but then you've just told me, but don't let the students create art verbatim. What do you want me to do? I want you to highlight that there are many contemporary, incredible artists of color, of non-visible minorities, all across the world, creating really cool things. And we can talk about the work. We can look at it. We can talk about the elements of it, the color, the shapes, the representation. And then we can think about how that might relate to our own lives. In the case of Norvell Morisot, he was often depicting images that were very sacred. So if I were to talk about this with students, we can think about, well, what's sacred in our own cultures and families? What are some family stories that are really interesting that are told widely? And they don't have to be sacred. They can just be a story that is passed down from generation to generation. If you come from a family that doesn't have that type of history, think about other narratives that have been passed down from generation to generation and how we depict them using different colors, different shapes. Now we're starting to have a conversation about the elements of an image, what makes up a composition. Instead of verbatim copying the composition, we're taking inspiration to create our own works of art that are going to be representative of us and our stories while paying tribute and honoring the work of other people. And this brings us to number three. It doesn't all have to look the same. Another common issue that I see frequently is all art looking the same. I mean, you look at a bulletin board and all of the sunflowers are the same size, the same color, same, same for everything. Again, I have done this. I actually recall talking to a parent after an art class once and they asked me, which one did my child make? And I couldn't answer. They all looked the exact same and the names of the students were on the backs of the paper. Visual art is a language. It gives us a way to communicate our emotions and insights in ways that no spoken word really can. But like language, it takes time to master and often we mess up. We flub words or we can't find the right expression. We lack practice and so we fall out of use. Art as a language also allows us to demonstrate our thinking process. Looking through a sketchbook or a video of a person drawing and creating studies, it's a brief glimpse into a person's mind. And they can tell us so much about their habits, their lifestyle. The process defines who they are as a person and as an artist. So if all art looks immediately beautiful and the same, what the hell is the point? In the past, art academies and guilds had students copy a work of art until you could not distinguish the copy from the original. Once students mastered a technique, they moved on to a new one. This was because so many artists and craft people were hired to support a master artist or craftsperson in what they were doing, and they needed to be able to mimic the style of the master in charge. In other circumstances, artists and craftspeople 
were hired to recreate works of art or objects because there were no means of mass production like we have today. If we are simply teaching a skill, go to town with practicing, but when it comes to creating a unique body of work, please don't ask students to do the exact same thing where you can't tell one student's work from another. I find that when we ask students to all make the same thing, it has more to do with the teacher and control over the class than it does with learning. It's about following a recipe, following the rules. As educators, we want everything to turn out well, because oftentimes it also reflects on our work as educators, and we want to ensure that students are also demonstrating the right skills. We want them to be successful and we want to be successful. But this I do, you do, we do mentality has more to do with following instructions than it does with art and expression. If you want the students to paint a dog, I ask why a dog and why the same kind of dog. If we teach them to look for shapes, use texture to create value and play with line quality, they may not make the perfect poodle, but they will create a dog in their own vision. So what's more important? That one student creates an incredible poodle, another one creates an amazing wiener dog, another one creates an amazing German shepherd, and another student creates a Bugatti. What does it matter? Four, anime. I have literally had a lineup of teachers waiting to come speak to me after a workshop to talk about anime. All the questions are usually in the realm of, I have a student who only draws anime. How do I get them to stop? And my question back to them is always, why do they have to stop? And there are some very valid reasons to ask students to stop with the anime, don't get me wrong. We may want them to explore different styles, themes, or techniques, such as learning to draw from life or creating non-representational compositions. Those are valid and reasonable requests, but oftentimes I feel like, why can't the kids keep drawing in their style? Art Curricula asks that students demonstrate a body of work that represents multiple techniques, a wide range of research, references, the ability to talk about their work or the work of others, to somehow demonstrate that they can take and give critical feedback. If they can do all of these things while only using anime as their main form of expression, are they not still doing what we ask of them? Are they not still hitting all curriculum points? If you had a student who was obsessed with pastels, you might ask them to give paint a try every so often. But overall, you probably wouldn't have a huge issue with it. Or a student who excelled at art that was lifelike, almost as though they were a camera come to life. You might ask them to push themselves a bit to try different styles like abstraction, but overall, you'd be proud. So why are you worrying about anime? Anime has a long and very robust history in the world. It originated in Japan with its modern inception coming into its own in the late 1950s. Anime was and continues to be aimed at both children and adults. There is a great six-part documentary series on YouTube called History of Anime by the creator Anime Every Day. Check it out to see the evolution of that art form, and I hope that you will come to see it as a valid style of art and one that is worthy of leaning into. 
I hope that some of you would even consider creating anime units or studies in your art rooms. Five, high-priced materials. Artists once made their own brushes and paints, and you can too if you really want. I would make paintbrushes and paint with students all the time. We would gather materials and create our own brushes, grass, twigs, hair, leaves, whatever. I found that when we made our own tools, the students understood the importance of tool maintenance and upkeep. They began to clean things better and respect the equipment more when they understood the process and the sheer amount of time and effort that it took to make something like a pencil or a paintbrush. We all have made stamps or drawn in the sand, so why not build that into your art practice and your art education practice? It leads us away from buying these high-priced materials that are often lost on some students. I was watching a digital drawing tutorial a little while ago and found myself wondering that dreaded question that I already warned you about. What brushes, digital brushes, is the artist using? And it's so funny because as I thought this, the artist on the tutorial actually said, I am often asked what brushes I use. And my answer is, you're asking the wrong question. This was a brilliant response as he was reminding us that the brushes don't really matter. What matters is the practice and the underlying skill. If we're not practicing consistently or not understanding the why or the hows of basic drawing, no brush or pencil or tool can correct it. I encourage you to start out with basic tools like a pencil, a fine liner, maybe a ballpoint pen from the dollar store until you get a feel for different techniques and start to develop your own skills. From there, introduce a different tool of a different quality and begin to understand the difference in mark making and quality of mark. This is how we can begin to build preference in a tool. So for example, I'm a bit of a pencil crayon snob, but it's because I've understood over the years that I like a really specific type of pencil crayon because of the paper I tend to use. I like to blend colors, so I'm always looking for a pencil crayon that has that blendability factor. The cheaper the pencil crayon, the harder it is to get the colors to blend. So if I buy a more expensive pencil crayon, the easier it is and the more lush the color. But I've only come to find that after years and years of experimenting with different types of pencil crayons, I now have my favorite. And I encourage you to find yours. Finally, six, it should be fun. Remember fun? Seriously, when is the last time you made art and smiled, or felt joy, or lost yourself in the element of creation? Let's bring that to the students that we teach and to ourselves. We deserve joy. So maybe that does mean a couple coloring pages or some art-themed games. It doesn't always have to be a serious study or creating these epic bodies of work that are going to be on display for parents or community members. It could be, but it's also just about experimentation and understanding why art is so wonderful. Look at funny art, look at beautiful art, creepy art, anything that gets the students and you interested, talking and smiling. Art education is difficult. 
there is no one right way to do it. And this is the way that I have found to be best for me in my context. And that doesn't mean it's going to work for you or yours. You might not be an art educator. You might have absolutely no interest in teaching art to others, but still something to think about for yourself. Things don't always have to look pretty. Stop focusing on dead white dudes. Don't worry about looking the same and fitting the status quo. Don't worry about anime. It's awesome and you should watch it or read it. Don't worry about the high prices of materials. Exploring it to know what you're interested in and find the fun. Life is supposed to bring us joy in some capacity. I heard someone say once that the secret to life is not finding everlasting joy. It's about finding small moments in the day that make you smile. By the end of your life, those small moments, that will be your all-encompassing, overarching joy. I want you to think about the last time you created something for the joy of it. You weren't worried about it looking beautiful. You weren't worried about it being for marks or being marketable or something that you're going to post on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. In fact, I encourage you to create art and not post it anywhere. Just keep it for yourself. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. And have fun with it. Thanks for listening. Art Intervention is researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Alexandra Hunt. Follow us on social media at Art Intervention. And if you like the episode, don't forget to subscribe. Give it a rating and tell a friend. Remember friends, sharing is caring. This podcast is created on the traditional territories of Treaty 7 land in Southern Alberta, Canada. Art Intervention is a proud member of the Alberta Public Radio Podcast Network.